Conversations on the Margins with Lynn Ruan, a Go Loud original. Conversations on the Margins is a Go Loud original podcast. The following episode contains strong language, mentions of drug use, violence, and suicide. Discretion is advised. Do you find it common? Yeah, yeah, it's therapeutic, all right, yeah. Yeah. Do you think that's the type of stuff you could do when you're at home if you have cravings? Do you, or yeah, do you think you will? <laughs> no, I would. <laughs> you have to ask a girlfriend for song yeah, kit for Christmas. This episode is focused on addiction and mental health, and I think in one episode you couldn't even do justice to this topic. Because in many cases, a lot of people have ended up in the prison system who have addiction issues or then have developed them within the prison system. And some people who need mental health interventions have ended up in the prison system. And you kind of get a picture that there's a lot of people that just need support and love that end up in prison rather than ending up with a mental health intervention. So I do think that a topic like this definitely could do with so many uh, episodes, but we obviously only have a short amount of time to cover such a, a big subject. So I think the, the, the lads that we interviewed cover it so well and, and so powerfully and I think we should be listening. In his book, Chasing the Scream, Johan Harry states that addiction is an adaption. It's not you, it's the cage you live in. And that the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. And I always come back to that statement. And even listening to the lads in the interview, I can hear they're longing for connection. They're longing for understanding themselves, connection to their family, connection to their histories, connection to their children, and connection to them even as citizens within their own space. I always wanted to have a child, and I always wanted a boy, and it was a, it was a, we never revealed the gender like before the. The, the bird so yeah when I found out I was a boy I jumped I jumped onto the doctor the, <laughs> the fell in the surgery and I grabbed him by the neck and I said look at the balls on him it's a boy <laughs> will you calm down will you calm down daddy what's your sister Dylan, when I first started chatting to him, actually was quite uh, quiet. But then he comes around pretty quick. He's actually quite open and trusting. And uh, he's one of the younger guys as well. And unlike some of the other guys, he hasn't spent a considerable amount of time in prison. So it was his first time. When he sat down in front of me to have the interview, I think what stands out to me the most is how much I just wanted to mess and giggle and laugh. You know, like when you're in school and like your friend and the two of you sit down the back of the class and you're just two messers. I just get that feel off him where you just want to have the crack with him. He's he's a tall enough guy. Yeah, he's he's just a young fella. He's just a young fella from Dublin. And you can tell that he has a huge amount of passions and he loves animals, which was something that I absolutely adored because so do I. But yeah, he just made me want to mess. Frank Hewlock, oh yeah. Grew up in Kowloch all my life. I'm 27 now, I'm 28 on Friday. I, um, yeah, just started off in a posh school. My match trying to keep me away from all, all the shit that happened around the area, but it just didn't really work out too well for her. But, um, yeah, I grew up with my sister, and my dad left when I was one. I've big into the horses and the football and fucking dogs and 
everything like that. Tell me a little bit about that then, a little bit about horses and stuff. Where did yeah. that love come from? I don't know, really. Just, my ma used to love them when she was, obviously, I used to go out on the horse when I was younger. Yeah, on the bareback and all. I used to think, no way, that's deadly. And then, uh, <laughs> fucking, I don't know, I think the lads just around the area were all into it as well. So I said, fuck it, I'll get on to the horse and went from there, yeah. Just loved them. Then, uh, into the dogs as well, then. Started breeding dogs and fucking ended up opening up a pet shop then. I left college, I went to do a PLC for animal science. And uh, after that, then just got into opening up a pet shop and the groomers and all. Wow. And and when you were younger, like I'm going to come back to yeah. you there in a minute, but when you were younger, did you always have a love of animals? Yeah, yeah I always loved animals, yeah. 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 What was, do you remember your first animal? I had a little Bichon Frise, yeah. <laughs> a little mad thing he was, yeah. I had one of them, a little scruffy thing he was. But uh, I had him, then I got a little bored. I asked my mum for a parrot and she got me a you know, little cockatiel, a cockatiel, whatever the fuck they are. <laughs> got one of them. And then uh, just went from there, yeah, just got into the horse and then just had everything. Had snakes, fucking spiders, ant, fish, loads of stuff, you know what I mean? So I was big into animals. So when you went to study your PLC, then what was your hope to do in terms of studying animals? Um, I don't really know. I just had an interest in animals and I thought that was the only thing that was available. Do you know, like when you Google into it, like what? Types of fucking work you can go into it and all was brought me to the PLCs, you get me? Mm. So um, I never thought I'd open up a pet shop around, I just said I'd go with the flow. But then I left that and a fellow was closing down his pet shop and we went down, I was going down to buy dog food one day. I was like, What's the story here? And he says, Oh, it's not making any money. I was like, Yeah, fuck it, I'll give me it, I'll buy it off you. And I ended up buying it off, was bleeding mad, just one of them mad ideas, you know, at the time. Then I got sucked into that for a while, had that for about a year. I loved it, it was good. But I just end up getting involved with drugs and all, so okay. I went downhill. And we'll, you know? I'm going to come back to there again yeah. as well in a minute. So go, going back a little bit then to um, being in a school, I suppose, that your your mother was, your ma was obviously hoping would take you away from yeah, course, stuff yeah. going on in the area and stuff. And you kind of said, you know, that didn't work out too well because... I suppose you're, yeah, I know. you know, you know, um, and, and that's, and, and that's the thing, isn't it? Like education is just one part of it. Obviously yeah. there's so much more that can happen in a person's life, of course, yeah. you know, but when you were in school, um, what was your school experience like? It was grand, yeah. So like, it was always really class clown and all, you know what I mean? Like I was from Killock and everyone else was all from like Bowmouth and fucking Whitehall, all nice areas, you know that way? So I was just a bit of a messer. And did Always. you stay in that school right till the yeah, end? Yeah, I stayed in that till sixth class and then went to a different school and then for secondary, like. Okay, and was that a different type of school? Like, was that it was just an all-boys school, yeah. The first primary school was a mixed school. Okay. And why do you think you felt the need to be the class clown? I don't know. I don't know, really. Just, I was just different to everyone else. The way I was spoken all and just the way I went on was just completely different to everyone else. Do you know that way? don't know what it was. It's got a buzz out of it as well, though, you know? Yeah. Having a laugh. So did that mean then some of your friends were for your, from your community, but others were from other schools? Yeah, did you yeah, manage to maintain any of those friendships or no. relationships? As soon as I left school, that was the end of all them. A few people from that school went to the same secondary school, but they all got into all the, the higher subjects and all, do you know what I mean? What subjects did you like in school? I liked art and uh, business, history, was it really? Yeah. Yeah. That was all really, yeah. Second like bollocks in school as well, though. Really? <laughs> yeah. And were you, when you're saying that you got into drugs, was that drug use first? Yeah, drug use at the start and then fucking selling drugs. And yeah. 
What you t- what age were you when you first started using drugs? Probably about 15, I'd say. About 15? About 15, yeah. Started smoking weed when I was about 15 and then started taking all the party drugs then when I was about 17. Yeah. So, um, yeah, good while anyway, yeah. And is that that was more just because you were just you were you were enjoying drug use at the time or? I don't know. It was just a normal back then. Everyone was doing it. It's just didn't see the the, the long term effects on it. You know what I mean? Do you I think always warned, warned about them, but wouldn't listen. You know what I mean? Do you think they had long term effects course, for you? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, definitely. Can't remember fuck off. You can't remember anything. <laughs> no, I can, but. It's only when, like, I'm after taking a break from drugs now compared to when I was out there, and I'm starting to remember a lot more now, do you know what I mean? I'm not as paranoid, I'm not, I haven't got that much anxiety or anything, do you know what I mean? I never had that before I started using drugs, then I start getting that, do you know that way? So, in terms of, like, feeling paranoia and stuff, do you feel that there was, did you suffer a little bit with anxiety and paranoia throughout your drug use? Yeah, 100%, yeah. yeah. How did that affect your relationships and friendships and... Yeah, fucked it up sort of, yeah, because you want, always want to be in on your own sort of, doing your own thing, like you wouldn't be going out because you'd be getting all social anxiety and all and you'd need drugs to go out, do you know that way? Like I'd just go out on a fucking millibag of coke out of it just to get out of my head then, do you know what I mean? Then it'd be loving life, but like if you had to ask me to go out and not do drugs, I'd be like, no, no, I'm not going out, you know that way? How hard do you think it is then to, to socialise now when you leave here without drug Grand use? Grand now, it's because I'm so used to it now from being in here, I'm sort of forced to just... To get on with people, do you know that way? And do you think it will be hard to maintain that when you go home, or? Yeah, probably will. Yeah, to be honest, like, cause I've been like away from drugs for so long, I'm gonna get out there and I'm gonna be like, oh, give us a bag of green, or give us this, and do you know what I mean? It's been a while, but hopefully, I, hopefully, I'm not on the head. So you say hopefully, but I'm sure you're sitting here figuring out ways to. Yeah. Mind yourself, do you? Of course, yeah. Just having a bit of structure, you know, just getting up, like having a routine and going to the workshops and all that shit like that. Mm. So hopefully when I get out, I'll get something under my belt. Yeah. Do you know that way? How old are you now, did you say 27. Again? 27. Yeah. So what age were you when you first came to prison? Just there last year. Just la- and that was your first time? Yeah, first time, yeah. Yeah. How did yeah. it feel to... Because oh, a, oh. a lot of lads in here have, have been in and out since they're much yeah, younger yeah, yeah. even. How, how? What type... Oh, it's what type of feeling did you have? Horrible is, yeah. Explain just, it a little bit to me. Just, you know, when, you, like, when the judge gives you, you said two and a half years, I was in bits crying, crying the eyes out. Like, I was thinking I was going in here, I'm going to get away with this. Because I've always thought I had luck with courts, you know, when I was younger and all going in, and ah, you get slapped in the wrist, you get a fine and all this and that. But this was like, fuck it, something's telling me I'll get away with it. And then when you're down in the hole and telling you're after getting two and a half years, it feels like the end of the world, you know that way. And are you surprised then when you were here to... I suppose having that perception of people where they they seem tougher or they they've yeah. been in and out a few times, so they're a little bit um, even protective themselves of showing yeah. any sort of vulnerability and stuff. Are you surprised then sometimes at people you thought were really macho and oh, then you see that yeah, they're, they're not? They're the nicest people you'll ever meet. Like genuinely, they are. Yeah, like the ones that go on like that are actually hundred percent, and it's the ones that aren't like that. You're saying, "Ah, oh, he's a bit bogey." Like, <laughs> it's not that way. It's mad. Now, out me always there was a lot of decent people in jail as well. Lot, like the vast majority of would be, you know that way. Do you have any kind of regrets about how life has gone so far? Is there anything ah, yeah, you do different? Yeah, yeah. yeah Tell me a yeah. little bit. Just the, the amount of drugs I was taking out there. Like, I built up a tolerance where it was just a sick amount of drugs I'd be taking, and I'd be just taking them to feel normal. Do you know that way? So if I could go back now, I just I'd, well, I wouldn't knock it on the head. I can't say that, but I'd definitely tone it down a bit. Do you know what I mean? Because down there every weekend and then weekends we turn into the weekdays. Just 
living a horrible routine, like there's more to life than fucking sitting in your gaff taking drugs. How hard is it not to take drugs for you? I don't know, see, when I have something to do, I'm all right. Like, if I'm occupied, I won't, I won't even think about having a joint or anything. Like, mm. suppose in here you have more to do with the skill and the workshops and going out to the yard and just having a chat with someone, do you know what I mean? Is there anybody that kind of helps you within the prison system to be able to manage? Yeah, uh, yeah, it's just my cellmates. The last, I've had fucking three different cellmates since I came in and they've been, they've been here years. So they're jail words, you know what I mean? Like, they, they tell you, don't do that or you need to be doing this and all and they warn you and like you still make the mistake and they say, oh, I told you so, you know that way? So yeah, they've helped me. Brenda's helped me loads now since I came in. She's a saint, she has, she really looked after me, you know that way? And um, just the teachers and all the teachers are all lovely, like, feel like I'm back in school. Do you know what I mean? It's good. It's all right, it's not half as bad as what they make it out to be. Do you know what I mean? But now, if you're down a bit longer than I'm down now, you wouldn't be saying the same. So you, yeah, because you can see the finish line. <laughs> yeah, I've only 12 months left, so hopefully I'll only have to do half of that and I'll get out on a scheme or something, do you know that way? But if not, it's only 12 months, not the end of the world. It's coming to now, no release, release dates or nothing, do you know that way? And is that how some people get through um, time in here by measuring it against how worse or how bad it can be? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Like that's when I, I'd be down the account now, the dates and all, and my cellmates were saying, you relax, like he hasn't got, even got a, set, a, a release date and he's already in fucking 7, 15, 20 years and all, and I'd be thinking, yeah, actually, what am I bleeding moaning about, you know that way? How it's hard do you think it is for people without a release date? Like, how oh, do people horrible, get yeah. through that? I don't know. Just, I don't know, I wouldn't be ever like I wouldn't I can understand why I'd like to go on the stuff and fucking end up strung out like do you know that way. Mm. I'd say if I was doing a fucking life sentence I'd be the exact, exact same, do you get me? Yeah. Can totally relate to that all yeah. Yeah. So tell me then, in terms of um like and I suppose working with your hands and stuff and doing yeah, art, yeah. is there anything you've discovered in the last year or so that you've been here that you're good at that you just thought you'd never try or um, we like the gym like I'd always on the outside I'd be always saying to myself like if I went to the gym I'd be like yeah I feel great I'm going to keep going but then a few days later I wouldn't go and then I'd just say oh fuck that I'm not going but when you're here you have nothing else to do you're going to the gym you're going two or three times a week even that you feel much better about yourself so hopefully when I get out now I'll stick stick to going to the gym and then same with the class the fabric classes and all now just sitting there stitching stuff and all it's good buzz, like. Tell me about what the type of stuff you make in fabric class. I only started it, but we made a little emoji, no little pillow. Made a little emoji, like another winky emojis. Made one of them and then made a little picture of a pit bull and you're just doing the embroidery, like stitching it all. It's good. Had you ever stitched before? We used to do knitting when I was in primary school, yeah. <laughs> it was one of the classes we did, yeah. Do you find it calming? Yeah, yeah, it's therapeutic, all right, yeah. Yeah. It's good. Do you think that's the type of stuff you could do when you're at home if you have cravings? Do you, or yeah, do you think you will? <laughs> no, I would. <laughs> you have to ask a girlfriend for song kit yeah, for Christmas. Stop, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and your mate's calling like over. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. sitting there knitting. Stop. <laughs> I, love no, it. I used to do that when I was in primary school. I used to bring the knitting home and my mum would be sitting there, oh, I love it. And it was the only thing that I'd, I'd put extra effort into going back into the, into the school the next day. Like we'd get sent home to make a snowman and that'd be just a simple little stitch and my mom would be making fucking Santis and blading reindeers, you name it, like she'd be making it and I'd be going back in with saying, oh, we did that. But it was good, like you enjoyed it, all right, yeah. Sitting there fucking having a joint with my mom. Because, <laughs> so, yeah, sometimes it's our, it's our life situations that mix with the with a drug use that creates course, the negative the stuff. Negative sides of Do it, you know? Yeah, of course, yeah. Like that overthinking of if I have a joint, and I'm after having an argument with my brother or something's after happening, like I overthink it. 
and you're coming up all these different scenarios in your head that probably aren't real, you know that way. So that's what gives you the anxiety and the paranoia, you get me? But no, there's definitely good, good benefits of it as well. Yeah. So tell me then, right? So you've you've another year in here. Yeah, another twelve months. What yeah. What do you think you can do? I suppose for the next year while you're in here to make, uh, I suppose give you the best possible chance when you go home. Um, just get back over to the. I was on a drug free landing there, and I got I got shown up last week. Um, show you back over there, cause when the landing I'm on now, like down there, like there's drugs. You can get drugs, you know what I mean? Over there, it's it's a it's a battle. So I mean, so I was I was over there trying to get them, and it just wasn't happening. Do you know what I mean? So you started to just say, really forget about it. But down where I am now, it's just like if you want something, you get. It's not that way. So I'm gonna try to get back over there, back get my job back, and uh, just go to the gym. Just pass the days. You know what I mean? Mm. Like over there, you can go to, you can go to the gym three times a day. Over here, you're barely getting it once a day, and if you if you do get it, it's too many people. Or you know what shit like that. But um, that's me plan, and you go over there just. Keep going to the skill, going yeah. to the workshops and that. So, like you mentioned there, um, like getting back onto the wing, I suppose, where where the drug free wing, right? Yeah, so yeah. where people are seeking kind of abstinence. They or all have the recovery. same sort of goals as you as well. Do you know what I mean? They're not. They want to get. They have to sort of stay drug free. They're getting schemes that are going to an open prison. They're getting urines and all. Do you know that way? But do you do do you do anything then on that wing to help you understand? Why you use drugs or why you abuse drugs? Do you get any supports like that? No, because there's one really thing changing no. the wing, but no, your, no, your mean, head no, will you go everywhere. You don't really know. No. Since I came in, I had my name down for psychiatry and then uh, drug counselling as well. I've been called to them, but it's just too many people in the jail, isn't it? Like they're all overflowing. Like yeah, they're all waiting to see. They're all waiting. It's all the same boat. Like to know yeah. that way. It's only do so many counsellors. Like do you think the prison would benefit from a lot more people that work in specialised areas like addiction and stuff? Ah, oh, 100% yeah. Of course they would yeah. Do you think people would use it? Yeah, yeah, definitely yeah. I would anyway yeah. I know a lot of people would as well. It's all just about talking isn't it? You get off your chest and you feel much better. Do you feel um, as you kind of get a little bit older now and you're in your mid-twenties do you talk more than you did when you were younger? Like are you learning to kind of share yeah. a bit more? No, oh, 100% yeah. Definitely yeah. Coming out with Michelle a lot more since I came in head and was outside because I'd be always stuck to the same sort of people outside. They'd be sick of listening to you, do you know that way? In here you have different people coming in and, in and out all the time. You're making mates, like you're make, not making loads of mates in here since I came in that I never would have made on the outside, do you know that way? And then when I get out now, I'll, I'll be still friends with them, you know that way? Yeah, and you learn to kind of socialise a bit yeah, better. Yeah, of course, yeah. I reckon I'll be able to go out to a hub now and not take that. Oh, well, you might want to wait a little while now and just make sure, right? <laughs> Stop, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're already thinking, how can I be in a pub and not take that? <laughs> and that's the hard thing, isn't it? Because yeah. it's like, how do you reimagine your life um, and still have connections to your friends and the outsides and being able to socialise and not yeah. and not use drugs, especially if you're someone that struggles with drug use when you use it. That's a really hard, isn't it? Is it scary to think of trying to manage your life in that way? Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. Like, I feel like when I go out there now, I'm after having such a long break from taking coke, say, to when I go out there now, I'll say, no, I'm not feeling like that again. Because I've had so many experiences where I end up in the hospital and you know, I'll just end up depressed down my head for weeks and just in bits over it, you know, that way. So I know when I get out now, that that's the last thing I want to do is go back to that. Do you know what I mean? Getting down, we probably in the dumps, like... I feel horrible like mm. do you think we forget sometimes how bad we felt yeah I think I've had that many scares though that I remember it 
Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I've had enough enough like things to happen to me that it's like Jesus. It's only when you're in here you think, what the fuck? What was it doing? Like, do you know that way? And it's all it starts with drugs. Because I wouldn't do it for sober, you know that sort of way. Do you regret anything that you've done while you were under the influence? Yeah, loads. Yeah. yeah. Do you think about them much? Yeah, all the time. Yeah. And I always like used to think when people say, "Oh, it wasn't me. It was the drugs. It was the drink." And I was saying, "I go out that," but it wasn't me, and it was the drugs. We can blame the drugs on it because I wouldn't do that sober, you know that way. Like I've done some stupid things on drugs that I'd never do. So this break away from all that type of stuff opens your eyes. Do you know that Give way? Give you some perspective. Yeah, big time. Yeah. So who who do you want to be? I don't know. I want to be a father for one. Anyway, I want to be someone that people not look up to, but like respect. Do you know that way? Because like the way I was going out there, you wouldn't look up to him. or you wouldn't respect him. Do you know that way? So I want, I want that. Anyway, I want someone that has nice scarf, dogs, horse, whatever. You know all that, all that type of stuff. Good job. One of the few things in life anyway that I wouldn't have wanted before I came in. It's only when you're in here and you realise, oh, you had it. Oh, you sort of had it out there. Like, I had a cushy out there. Do you know what I mean? And you realise that, jeez, I haven't done nothing now. Far proxy walls. Like, <laughs> do you know that way? But now I'm looking forward to getting out and starting my life again. Yeah. And you feel like, do you feel like it's a, it's a fresh start for you? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. How, how do you feel then? Do you feel that other people will allow you to have that fresh start? I don't know. See, like, I'm, I'm one of them people that, like, if you've done something on me in the past, I won't forget. So I just hope people aren't like that to get me. Hope people can see past all that and see that I'm after changing and I'm, I'm changing, do you know what I mean? It's all well and good saying, oh, I'm after changing in here, but it's when you go outside, what way if you're going to carry yourself out there, do you get me? So I suppose if I go out there and just, if I prove to everyone that I'm after copping on, maybe they'll give me a second chance, do you get me? So it's about having to kind of work for that yeah. trust again. Yeah, hundred percent. Like my whole family turned against me over all this stuff that I've brought on me, man, myself, and to the family. Like, do you know what I mean? It's all a lot of shameful stuff. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't want that holding against you. you get me? Do you feel shame? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. What does that feel like? It's horrible. It's nasty. Yeah. I suppose you have to just get on with that, don't you? It's no point in sitting there, sitting around thinking about it, like. Yeah, and I think, like, I mean, so many of us feel shame in our lives, and it is, it's it's, yeah. it's even, it's kind of indescribable. It's like, I don't even know how to describe the feeling of shame. It's a feeling in the body, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, I think, but I think we can, like, it's not that we won't ever not be ashamed of the things we've done or experienced in our lives, but I definitely do, um, you know, hope for you in the sense that, you wanting to be the person that you've described like a father, a loving son, yeah. making amends to the people that you love, that that is somewhat in your control to try and make that happen when you leave yeah. here. Not going to be easy. No, it's not. No. You know, it's not going to be easy. But I am. Um, you that shame moves further and further away from us. Of course, yeah. The more we replace that them negative things with new experiences of you. who you are. Yeah, you it's know, like outweighs the sort of. Yeah. I get you, yeah. I don't know what you mean, yeah. Yeah. So if you were to name one one positive trait or characteristic about yourself, what would it be? Genuine. You're genuine? Yeah, it would be genuine, yeah. Yeah, what you see is what you get. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it would be, it would be genuine enough, yeah.
first time ever I saw From a very early age, the children who are now the men we hear from today speak about rejection and they speak about anxiety and finding a place to belong. And drug use put to me as an escape. But escape from what are the questions that we need to be asking from? Why do people need to escape from their lives? On some occasions, their minds and on others, the realities of the things that they've experienced in life is what they're escaping from. Anto speaks about the energy of chasing drugs while locked up. And while abstinence is hard fought for, drug seeking is all consuming. And the first time ever I with Anto is absolutely uh, brilliant. I think if ever you wanted to really appreciate the rawest, grittiest Dublin accent, Anto's it, he brings it straight to you. I think he has this vice that you would just listen to all day also he is he's quite confident not in a not a cocky confident but he's happy to engage and he's really I think learned lots about himself so it comes across in his mannerisms so even though you'll be able to hear Anto's real kind of insights to his feelings in person in the physical sense he has quite a presence you know he's He's by no means six foot anything, but he's stocky and he's solid and he's solid in himself and he's broad shoulders and he's tight hair. And it's really great to see this physical presence of this man here, but then also hear the lovely emotion and vulnerability and the way he expresses himself in, in his life. Like, you know, myself from taking drugs and stuff like that, when you're in jail, jail's hard enough as it is, so the cleaner you are in jail, the easier jail is. If you're chasing in jail, it becomes becomes a harder place then again, and you're constantly chasing your tail, like... And as well, it's the people that's around you, like... I, I've got friends in here, like, you know, and, like, we all look after each other, and we do our training, and we keep ourselves healthy and stuff like that. Yeah, everyone has got a bad day, but... To stay away from drugs in jail is a lot easier than staying away from on the outside because there's certain groups in jail that wants to be away from it and there's people that want to be on it. But if you're getting outside to your mates, there are probably 90% of them is all on it, so you're around it. And that's that's the harder part. But in, in jail, it's a lot easier to stay away from drugs. If you want to do it, it's not as much as jail is comfortable, but if you want to do a comfortable jail... You're staying away because you're not chasing, you know what I mean? You're chasing right, yeah, your next high from the gym. You're chasing going to the school or going to a workshop or you're visiting stuff. But if you have to add in chasing drugs with that at the same time, it's just every day becomes mm. nearly 60 hours, not 24 hours. Like yeah, that's it's interesting. A, it's a long day for you chasing and then you're like, you're watching, like, and you see it with people, like, they live from day to day just on the next little buzz. And look, that's how they knock the four walls down. But me personally, being clean in jail makes jail a hell of a lot easier and it stops that mindfuck basically in your own head that you're looking right and looking for the next one. Clean or right, gym today, this, this. You make your plan now, but your plan doesn't become in with chasing. If your plan becomes in with chasing, everything else good that's going around you goes out the window then. So they, yeah. they find it easier to keep a good structure of cleanliness rather than chasing. Now, don't get me wrong, I did have my bad times in here and had my parties too, but two or three days of the press, so then you had depression from drugs, not seeing your family, actually being in jail, 
And then an officer pisses you off. That all combined together, that's a recipe for disaster, like, you know. So staying clean in jail. Some people might say different, but I think makes it a lot easier, like, you know. Yeah, no, I think that makes so much. Nobody's ever actually explained it to me in the way that you have and just how... Um, still kind of being an active addiction within the prison system is actually an extra layer of kind of harm. Harm, yeah. Well, yeah. it's, it's mind, mind wrecking, like, you know what I mean? You're like, right, who has that? And then you're saying, oh, he has that and that land and I need to get to that land and, and you're doing everything in your power to get to that land and he doesn't have it or you know he has it and you didn't get it. You see the people, their heads is gone yeah. then. So if you can create that type of structure for yourself then in here, um, are you confident then or are, not even just yourself, but other people? Because for a lot of the time when I'm talking to people who spent time in prison and then come out, it's that the, 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 the structure within the prison system can sometimes allow for you to kind of set a plan for your day or to have aspirations. Like, so yeah. if I look over all the letters that my pals sent me when we were kids growing up, they always say stuff like when I get out. I'm going to go back to school. When I get out, I'm going to get a job. Yeah. And people are full of hopes when they're in the prison system. But then they get out. And like you said, like 80, 90 percent of your friends could be still in a chaotic kind of setting. How do you take the, the, the reflection and structure that you've built into your life in here and then maintain that when you go home? Well, it's, it's people that say it's a bit more stubbornness or something with me. I did, I was off everything but 12 years and they'd be sitting in the pubs and the lads would be sniffing and they'd be this, that and the other. And it was hard, it was hard to say mm. no, like, don't get me wrong. And I was the first one falling asleep because I was only drinking while they were still sniffing and all. But it's, you got to look at when you're sober and clean and with a good mind, you got to look at what you have. And for me, it's family and kids, like, so that, that's a mental drive for me alone, just to stay clean and good for them. And then at the same time, like you don't want to be great, you want to be living, you don't want to be existing. And then so when you combine family and living and existing and that together, that's the best hoy you're ever gonna get. Do you know what I mean? Like it's like don't I do say it to the young fellas even in here, go out for a run. That's the best drug you'll ever do and go out there ten K race, something like that. But you have to being an addict we're going to have to keep going, like, you know what I mean? As in, you have to keep keep your thriving by something else all the time. So you will always keep yourself busy. Me, it's training and stuff like that. And me horses, I love me horses. I'm big into horses. Some say I love me horses more than the kids, but that's <laughs> that's my thing. So you got to turn it, right, you might overdo it, but that, uh, people can do that with food as well, but that's part of being an addict. I'd rather overdo with horses than I would with sniffing coke and taking drugs, like, you know what I mean? So that's that's what we did the last time. We planned, right, well, kids, family, sort all that out, get myself a hobby, and the hobby's not sitting in the pubs drinking, it's find a different hobby. And then I was able to go stags, I was able to go to parties, and I just drank, and that was it, and that's, that did suit me, you know what I mean? Until then, depression kicked in, and then that's... So, and I took my slip like. So you find that that's, that's the hardest part for you is that when, you, when your mental health is impacted or that depression seeps in, that the drug use comes back into, yeah, your, that's, into your life. I need that numbness then, like, you yeah. know what I mean? So that's when I'll take it when the, the brain starts rambling and the crazy yeah. anto comes back out into the head. That's when I start taking the drugs, like, you know what I mean? But if I'm, I find when I'm out there as well, helping, helping others keeps 
me helping myself. Like I know people might think that's weird, but it is. Like I, I do things with the kids in the box and teaching them boxing and stuff like that. It was just silly little things. Like I went back and I joined the um, civil defence, the fire service. But at the time I was doing all that, I was flying. I was great in myself. But then when the depression starts kicking in slowly, I'm dropping this and I'm dropping that, and then I'm just doing a means to an end just to survive rather than being happy and stuff again. Like You know what I mean? Like If, if that's the right way of putting it, I suppose. But you have to keep yourself... You have to keep your brain... Being an addict, you have to keep your brain stimulant. If you don't, it's it's hard, and especially when depression and... Like, as I say, go to the doctor. The doctor never told me about mindfulness. He says, I can't give you antidepressant tablets because, like, you're an addict, like... And I'm like, yeah, well, what... Where, where do I go? What do I do? I never got an answer. That. I always told go back to a drug counsellor, but... And this was the time where it was clean. It wasn't a drug counsellor I needed to see. It was someone from my mental health that I needed to see that you could sit and talk to. And you could only talk to your partner and your family so much before it's numb with them. Not that it's numb with them, but you're repeating yourself over and over again. And you can't... I don't know what way even to put it. Like, they... They can't help you, not that they can't help you, they can listen to you, which is a great thing, but they can't put a plan in place because if they put a plan in place and give you a structure, you're going to tell them, here, go away from me, stop telling Too me close. what to do. So if someone from the outside is telling you what to do, you're going to listen to that one better than you'd listen to someone closer to you, you know what I mean? Like, that's that's where I found it. Yeah, I think at the very start of this conversation, you mentioned the world word dual diagnosis, which is... Um, you know, I think just to like explain for anyone that listens to this dual diagnosis is when you have an addiction um, and you also have mental health issues. So you're able to identify that you have a dual diagnosis. Um, and what you've also identified is that um, nobody will give you the care for that diagnosis in its duality. So really, either our doctors or our addiction counsellors or our services should be able to work with people on a care plan that meets the needs of the dual diagnosis as a whole. Would you agree with that? 100%. Like, because you go see someone, say you see a drug counsellor, you're an addict. Yeah, right, so you have to see the counsellor. So the, the addict can't fix the mental health problem when he's taken and you can't fix the addict problem when the mental health is there. So like, it's a rock and a hard place Like when you're trying to get over and you're going for help and someone is telling you, no, well, I can't see you until you sort this, and then I can't see you till that is sorted. So where do you start sorting? In like, where do where do you start sorting? Like, it's well, you can come off the drugs, but yet the mental health is there. And then nine times out of ten, it's antidepressant tablets you're putting on, but the doctors say you can't take them because you're an addict. And then so the mental health people are saying to you, like, it's it's so confusing when you're looking for it. It's confusing, and it's only a my later stages of life where I'm realising that there is other tools, as I said, with mindfulness now, but when you're actually going looking, it's hard, it's disheartening because the only thing you know is go back, take drugs and numb yourself again and that's it, done with them. Like, you know and what it's I mean? this like, real lack of understanding, isn't it? That like, it's like if you sort one, the other one can be sorted, but yet they're so re- interrelated because in many cases, the drug use came from numbing the mental health issue. And then the mental health issue gets worse because of the drug use. So, like, they're not separate things. Like if, you, you, if you look down and now we're COVID, everyone's mental health and we change things. But you look at, I'd say, 99% of addicts have a mental health problem. They're not taking drugs 
just to take drugs and all that crack. Yeah, when they were younger, probably smoking a joint, but the hard taking of drugs to block out life, it's a mental health thing that they have. Now, it could be something that happened to them when they were a child or as they got older, but no one takes a drug, really. Like, they take a drug, recreation drugs, they take it for the crack, but no one takes a drug every day to take it every day. They're taking it every day to block something out, like, you know, going out on a weekend, having a few sniffs, yeah, that's for the buzz. But someone that's addicted to it and constantly taking it is taking it to block something else out. They're not taking it every day and going wrecking their families and robbing this or doing that or whatever just for the crack. They're doing it to block something out and to get that balance of mental health and drug thing right, I don't know if they're ever going to crack it, but that's that's where, with my problem, that's where it lies, is to get help on both ends of things. Yeah, you can have, you can be clean for 20 years and then you go about your mental health, you ask you an addict, and it's hard to say you are an addict to a doctor, but when you say it to them, then they can't do that for you because of being an addict, so then you're stuck back in the middle and the only thing an addict knows is to go back and use again and to get rid of this mental health problem. So it's that circle that you're back in all over again now. And like, you know, it's 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 hard sometimes, like, you know, when it's hitting you in the face when you're looking for help for a mental health problem when being clean and then you're told, no, because you are an addict, we can't help you. That's that's when it hits home hard, like, you know. Do you think the prison system is full of people that have Mental health issues. Oh yeah, 100%, man. Yeah. 100%. 99% of people in here have a mental health problem. Like They're not they're not in here for the crack, like, you know? Mm. Like, they're not coming to jail and losing their families just, just for the sake of it. Right, they're in because they did something wrong, but it's why they did that wrong. They did that wrong because they're either fueling addiction and stuff like that, and the addiction is down to a mental health problem, like, you know? So you're involved in the school then, you're doing the Red Cross training as well, isn't it? Is yeah. that where I took you out of this I morning? Did. I was facilitating for the drug overdose, I did some busy so man this t- morning. T- t- tell me a little bit about the overdose prevention piece that you were doing this morning. Like we, we, I'm only learning for the facilitator, but the Red Cross runs we do at the weekend, we get people up just to make them aware of overdose. And, and like when I started, there was things I learned that I thought I knew everything about drugs, but I didn't, like, you know, so we're just making, we're not, don't care if they're on drugs, not on drugs. We just want them into the class to give them an insight of overdosing and stuff like that, how they can cure, what to do if it does happen and how to help each other. But the biggest fear for overdosing and stuff like that in jails is actually to getting someone to go tell the officer, hey, listen, your man's on the ground here. No one's going to do that. Like you're, you're in jail. So we want to educate them that if there is someone on the ground, they can put them in the right position, they can help them and stuff like that. And hopefully someone, an officer or someone like that, cops mm-hmm. on that there is something happening, but at least the prisoner can help help them fill it out. Like. So what do you think? So so that's, so they obviously do that because they don't want to draw attention to drug use being on the landing or something, is it? So they don't say yeah, they're not right, they're not right. Yeah, in exactly. Jail, it's, yeah, yeah. It doesn't happen. So um, there's this drug called naloxone, um, which brings people around out of overdose. Um, and it's like you can train people like so, you know, in your Red Cross class or whatever, like you can train people to use naloxone. And um, so you say if you have a cellmate or the person beside you in the cell next is in an overdose, you can bring them around by just um, hitting them with a naloxone. Um, so there's a nasal one and then there's also a, a, a jab, like a prick one. Um, how beneficial do you think something like that would be in the prison system? Oh, it would 
that's the first time I've heard of one of them, like, but that, that should be on every landing in, in the jail. Like, and there should be someone trying up to use it on every landing. Like, there's someone trying to mop the floors, sweep the floors. And mm. So that's not saving someone's life. You should have someone trying to do that. Like, 100% I'd agree with that. Even an officer on every landing, if they don't want the prisoners doing it. But it should, should be on every landing because realistically, you're hearing of someone in a bad way every month, at least, probably not twice a month, mm. like, you know what I mean? But that's just swept under the, the carpet, like, because it's drug use, like, you mm. know what I mean? But to bring someone around from an overdose, that injection should be 100% should be on every landing, like, there's no point of trying someone to do mouth to mouth and this, that, and the other. If this is a quicker safe as well than this, do you know what I mean? Like, it's. To me, I've never heard of it before, but yeah, it should be one on the landing, like a brake glass, like with a yeah. defibrillator type of thing, like, you know, yeah. and have the one person, as I say, every landing trained into it means they can go and help the person, get your man around, and then bring him up without having to rat on that and that's going on, bring him up, where he goes, he needs to see the medic, he's out there having a torn or whatever, like, mm. you know, 100%, I think it should be on the landing. So you mentioned a while ago about um, how much you get from helping others and I suppose that you said you drop those things when your mental health is kind of impacted but when you are giving yeah. the sense of what you get from giving and I think it's a, it's quite a I, I, I love that idea because um, I think in all my years of like volunteering or working in communities um, you know when someone says oh you're real selfless like you work and I'm like no like this is com- I help people for complete selfish reasons yeah yeah doing it for yourself but and to help others at the same time yeah yeah unannounce yourself yeah helping yourself like you know what I mean but you, you'll you'll help all day long you don't mind like as people always say to me I'll fix everyone else's problems by my own but I love helping someone. I love seeing someone blossom and changing and stuff like that. Even if it's a young fella coming in here at Marlborough's taking them under the wing, getting them to the gym, getting them doing a few bits and bobs because no one wants to be in the jail. After this sentence, it's 13 and a half years I'm at the day in the jail. I'm done with it now. Like, I mean, you see someone coming in 18, you, you can be the hard man, say, yeah, go out there, do this, do that. But yeah, at the end of the day, you don't want them down there. He's only a young fella, like, you know what I mean? He's only starting his life. He can get out and go on to do a lot better things than being sitting in a jail cell, like, you know what I mean? So here's one for you, right, to wrap up, right? Um, you you had mentioned to me about, um, you know, getting people's insights or biases or, you know, ask me anything type of thing, yeah. you know, to kind of try and dismantle some of the, 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 the things that people might think about people in prison. And I don't think I need to do that in a sense because I even just think you're, you just chatting challenges all those anyway. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but I did carry out the survey um, in Leinster House. I made 51 responses from politicians um, and they were quite interesting. And it, one, of the, uh, one, one question asked for them to just say different words that they associated with people in prison. And one of the words that came up a lot, and the only reason it's coming up for me now is that when you mentioned about 13 and a half years and then, you know, young 18 year olds coming in and just what what could lie ahead of them in terms of their life spent in and out and in and out. And one of the most said words by politicians was um, wasted life. Yeah. Right. What do you think of that? Well. There's two ways I think of that now, if I'm being honest. Like, I wouldn't change that I've done. Definitely wouldn't change that I've done. But yeah, I have wasted my life being in here. But 
coming in here and getting clean and, and stuff like that like has made me a better person. So I wouldn't say it's a waste of life as such. If I could take the 13 and a half years back and spend it with my family, yes, 100% I'd do that. But wasted, I don't know. Um, probably missing a few good opportunities, I'd say, yeah, but wasting that, because that's what's had to make an answer who he is like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not proud of being in, in jail and stuff like that, but it's me. So I, I want to live a true life, not a comfortable life. I'm not here to fit in with the Joneses or anything like that. I'm me and that's it. But I, I wouldn't say it's wasted. You can use good things in, in jail. You can make good time with yourself. But as far as from my kids and family and stuff like that, yeah, I've wasted time away from them. But I wouldn't say I wasted life, no. Genuinely wouldn't say I wasted life, no. I like that answer because... Um, there's nothing you can do about the situation now in terms of what has gone. And I think um, people might think it's a wasted life in not even in a negative way, even in a sympathetic way. Like, wouldn't it be great if they had a, had different opportunities? Yeah. Because some of the words that did came up was trauma, childhood pain. Um, so people seem to have a better understanding than I thought they might. But I, the wasted life one really stood out to me because you could, like you said, you could take it in two different yeah, ways. Two. Is there parts you wish were different? Yes. But did you waste the time that you had when you were here? Clearly not, because I think um, the conversation that we've just had shows that even though prison should never be a feature in someone's life, but the fact that you're here and you're engaging in so much uh, self-reflection, um, you've tried to make the most of the time that you're here. Yeah, I've made the most of a bad situation and I've... I've sort of found Anto again and I've found different things with Anto that I didn't know before I came in here, if that makes sense to you, Luke, you know what I mean? And tell me tell me what you found. Well, I'm not as stubborn and as much of an, an age as I thought I was, but like if I just found me, back to being me again coming here, like I was on a mad path out there beforehand with like attempted suicide and stuff like that and all so like, yeah, it, it stopped me on my high horse from being on the, what I was living on outside, like, and the madness that was going on in my head. So I come in here and then I could relax. Like, I can remember being in custody and just by coincidence, I came in with me mate and we got doubled up together at the same time after getting arrested and that, like. But um, two weeks later, he pulled me and he says, Anto, he says, you know, you're a different fella, he says. He says, you're a completely different fella in them two weeks. He says, the weight has gone off your shoulders. You're not tensed and stuff like that. It's because the life that I was living outside with the head being in a bad place, I had no way to get over out there. But in here, you sort of feel a bit normal, if that makes sense. I don't know if that's right, but you do feel a bit normal and you have no weight in your head and... You can guide your own thoughts and stuff like that. And you're around everybody with similar problems. So, like, and same thing. So you can, you're not the black sheep of the person that's out there. We're all normal, sort of, in here. Probably not that everybody were normal, but we're all we're all on the same page, I suppose, in here, rather than, and, as I say before. Competing on the outside. Yeah, competing, and you know what I mean, and living comfortable life. Now I just want to live a true life now, and that's, that's what I've gathered from... This, this time in now is, is finding myself to be true to myself. I'm not going to... I don't want to be on my deathbed and say, oh, we should have done this or I should have done that. I'm, 
I'm impulsive. I'm gonna do it. means something stupid like swimming the channel. I'm gonna give it a go. I'm gonna try it. Do you know what I mean? I might drown halfway through, but <laughs> that's that's what I'm taught. And I don't want to waste them thoughts anymore and say, oh, I have to do this and I have to be there and this, that, and the other. I'm gonna go for it like this time around. Like that's that's what I'm gonna, I'm gonna drag the kids along with me, but I'm gonna go for it like a real life now. I'm not comfortable. I'm not fitting in with the Joneses now. I'm just gonna do my own thing, like you know. I think we need to finish on that. Anto's going to do his own thing. Yeah, Anto's doing his own thing, yeah. I'm writing to you, sweetheart. Is it cold? I'll wrap you in my arms. Serenade your broken heart. I think what Anto when he talks about receiving some sort of recognition with it inside the prison system for those issues. It's really difficult because throughout other episodes and throughout other conversations, you will hear people saying that they felt safe for the first time in prison, that they had access to an instrument for the first time, or that they had a- access to safety for the first time, or that they had access to care or access to a recognition of their dyslexia diagnosis and then in Anto's case, dual diagnosis. And it's very sad to think that someone's freedom and liberty has to be taken away before they have access to those things. And I think his story and his contribution really points to the need for us to be able to provide those things for young people at a much younger age. You're my hummingbird You're my hummingbird Waking up to you Yesterday, you're my hummingbird falling fast asleep. You're my hummingbird falling into me. You're my hummingbird. To go back a little bit, will you tell me a little bit, just so listeners know, like just what your role is? Yeah, in terms so of the prison service. I've been Director General of the prison service for the last three years, but I've spent the majority of my career within the prison service over 15 years. Um, at this stage, as Director General, I perform a number of functions. Firstly, obviously, I oversee um, the day-to-day operation of our 12 prisons. Um, I'm also driving a really, really ambitious reform programme right across every area of activity within the prison system. And then obviously, I have a really important role in terms of engaging at a central level within government to ensure that Ireland has a penal policy that's fit for purpose and that is progressive and that best supports the men and women in our custody to help them transform their lives, which allows us to contribute to safer societies. So Karen, there's a, there's a whole episode on mental health, actually, um, addiction as well and dual diagnosis and that whole area. And I think, um, you know, there was recent reports as well about, I suppose, people who need a mental health intervention not to not to actually be in prison, but to be actually receiving mental health care and then up in the prison system. And then I suppose the prison system is expected somehow to be able to to manage that and know what to do with that. And and also an expectation, I think, on staff and guards as well, who are not the, often the appropriate people to be actually doing an intervention with people that have needs and you know, f- 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 many times over the years, I've brought up the idea that, you know, if we had like um, pop up like 
psych like you, you you think of all these psychologists and all these psychiatrists and all these different people that want to give something like if you had a way to actually resource the prison service to be able to carry out needs analysis to be able to carry out diagnosis and um, in the work that I do with autism we're seeing more and more people leaving the prison system or presenting in addiction services who actually had undi- uh, undiagnosed autism and they were using either drugs or the criminal behaviour to kind of manage all of that uh, can you talk to me a little bit about that? Because it would be great to be able to find a way um, to have an actual strategy in the prison system where we actually carried out the, both the learning assessments and behavioural assessments and psychological assessments of people so that they at least had some idea about what needs and care that they might need going forward. Yeah, I mean, again, if we look at the demographics of who makes up um, the prison population in Ireland, I mean, some of the statistics are very concerning. Um, From talking to our head of psychology, um, our psychology service estimate that between 60 to 70 percent of people in prison have a personality disorder, Um, that about 25 percent of the population have ADHD and that over 25% of the population have an intellectual disability. And they are all clearly factors that give rise to a person's offending behaviour in the first place. On top of that, then, we have people with severe and enduring mental illness. And when I'm talking about that, I'm talking about people who are psychotic um, or are schizophrenic, who are currently being cared for within our prisons. Prisons are not the appropriate environment for people with that level of mental illness. They need a therapeutic environment. And notwithstanding the incredible efforts that all of our staff go to on a day-to-day basis, we can't provide the care those men and women need in a custodial setting. I have been to our prisons where I have seen staff. The level of care that's afforded is just absolutely incredible. In my visit to Castlery recently, there was a man being cared for in a safety observation cell and the staff knew that he liked dictionaries and astrology. So one staff member brought in a dictionary from home and another staff member went downtown at lunchtime and bought him a book on astrology. Um, so there's a huge amount of care. Our staff do are they're really their level best um, to support people, to mind people, to care for people. But what those people need is care within um, a, a, a hospital setting and not within a prison setting. We have amazing healthcare teams in our prisons. We get an excellent service from the National Forensic Mental Health Service in terms of inreach. Um, but the reality is we need to find a different way to care for people with severe and enduring mental illness who come in contact with the criminal justice system. There is a lot of work happening in this regard. So last year, Minister McEntee and Minister Donnelly set up a mental health task force, task force something that we'd been calling for quite a while to divert people away from the criminal justice system when their main presenting issue is not serious crime. It's it's an underlying mental issue. So there's a lot of work happening in relation to the guards having the ability to divert people away from the criminal justice system and into the appropriate treatment setting within the HSC. We're also looking at how we can provide better care within our prison. So, of course, people will come to, to prison and will be sentenced who have mental illness um, and some people with severe and enduring mental illness. We need to provide better care within our prisons. We need to find a different environment. We need to leave, look at a different staffing model where we have psychiatric nurses, social workers, occupational therapists to provide a wraparound service and not simply our doctors and our nurses and our prison officers. And then really importantly, that mental health task force is looking at the through care piece. So when we have somebody in custody, they're safe, they're well cared for, they're taking their medication, they've been monitored on an hourly, uh, sometimes a a more frequent basis to make sure that they're safe. When they go back to the community, we need to make sure that those people have the appropriate supports in place and the appropriate wraparound services so that they don't become chaotic again in relation to the management of their mental illness and again come in contact with the criminal justice system and end up in prison. So there is a very 
great unmet need in relation to mental illness in the prison system. We have an excellent psychology service. Um, I think I mentioned the ratio of psychologists to prisoners is 1 to 250. We did get funding um, in this year's budget to increase our number of psychologists, which is really, really welcomed. But again, there are waiting lists to access those services. And if we're dealing with people who pose the greatest risk and who are with us for a sufficiently long time to benefit from a psychological intervention, then we're much more likely to be able to reduce that person's risk as opposed to trying to provide that service to people who are living very chaotic lives in the outside and who are only with us for um, a number of weeks and months. Yeah, it's um, it's really stark, isn't it? Like, And it's... Um I think of a piece of research and I, I've quoted it before, but a piece of research I, I carried out as a research, uh, uh, one of the research managers of a team for Safety Net and Fiona O'Reilly was one of the, Dr. Fiona O'Reilly was one of the, the head uh, people on that. But there was a phrase used within that um, when we were carrying out that research um, was that the streets became our asylums. So in Ireland, we said we closed down asylums and it's like, all right, did we? Or did we actually just send people with those unmet needs straight onto the streets and straight into our prison systems. And just actually, we just continued institutionalised people, institutionalising people that had mental health needs in many different ways. It's just not called in asylum anymore, you know. It's, it's really stark in terms of, of, of the, the, the needs that people are presenting for within a custodial setting. Um, obviously, there are issues with the central mental hospitals. So at any given time, we've between 15 and 30 people who central mental hospital clinicians themselves have decided need admitting to the central mental hospital, but they don't have the capacity to take those people from the custodial setting. And for many of those men, they'll never get into the central mental hospital and never get the treatment that they require. They will get that uh, on an in-reach basis into the prison. So we're really looking forward to the opening of the new central mental hospital uh, when that happens so that there is an increase of access to beds. And again, as part of the mental health task force, we need to look at how we can better support people who come back into prison from the central mental hospital to keep them stabilised and keep them safe. Then I went away to jail And everything just fell apart I blame myself for letting you down I should have been there Yeah, I should have been around Senan is, I'd say, a little bit younger than myself, so maybe around early 30s. But there was parts of it where he could have been so much younger because he was just, he just had this shyness and this loveliness about him that was, it was like this mix of raw man coming in with the shoulders up and then by the end of the interview, just being this young man that, that wanted to be heard. Still remembered in cold nights. We were stood on your balcony Swearing that we'd never part How easy things can change it comes across in the conversations that we, the, the, the few conversations that we've had, how family orientated you are. You know, you're very, um, you're very focused, I suppose, on um, expressing the care you have for your family. And I'm wondering, how does it impact you then and being separated from them at what seems like they're having quite a traumatic time in their own personal lives with your sister and your younger brother and that must be hard for you, you must feel a lot of responsibility do you? Yeah of course like I attempted suicide twice out there I jumped in the river and I tried to hang myself and thank God I didn't I didn't succeed but when I used to go home like and my ma and my sister used to I know like I'm 30 years of age and I'm a man and all but they cuddled me like like a baby again, like when I was down on myself. I used to have rashes underneath me, you know, scabs up, you know, I was depressed, sitting down at the river early every night crying, 
thinking of just ending it all, arguing with me, me get the mother of my kid, and like looking for an argument with her and, and making myself paranoid and thinking all this was, ha loads of stuff was happening. I think it was just, I carried a thing from my father lying to me and trying to catch him out. That I'm trying to catch me, the mother of my kid out yeah, the whole so time. So what is well. the impact of that like? So if you're a young person, so you're a child that's grown up um, with addiction in the household and sometimes the person in the household that has the addiction, even though they, you know, y you want to love and support them and be compassionate and all those things, but it's hard not to also become unwell with the person that's struggling with addiction. Do you know what I mean? So the fact that someone you're trying to find out if someone's telling the truth all the time and yeah. it kind uh, of yeah. conditions you to, to yeah. not trust anything. Yeah, it's that's 100%. I've done psychology here and she gave me the whole, uh, what, like she gave me information about everything I'm to telling her. Like 12 sessions later, she came back with the, what would you want to call that? Like an assessment? Not, like, not like an assessment, but she came back like with... Like adverse childhood experiences yeah, and stuff. Yeah, all that. Yeah. And like what triggers it off and all and everything was about my childhood, like... Everything that happened in my childhood is after I'm after bringing it into different relationships, whether it's friendships or a relationship with a girl or whatever. How does it feel then to be able to recognise that? So sometimes as adults, I think sometimes we can blame ourselves and think that oh, it's my fault. I'm like this, right? Yeah. Like yet we need to move to try and as adults, we need to figure out how to get out of those habits. But we're not always responsible for learning those habits yeah that's so how do you feel when you realize that as a kid you, it's not your fault that you've had this kind of these emotions or thoughts or paranoia or trying to start arguments like how you never does... you never would have known it was your fault like the way i was living before i came in here it was like it was all real it was all you know and just when i come in here i'm looking back and i'm i feel pure guilt like that's why i just feel guilty like for everything i'm after doing and Criticising my dad for going down the road, he went went down and look at me now for fuck's sake! Like my kid was six months when he came in here, he's nearly fucking three. Like I don't mean to be coarsing or anything. No, that's okay. It's just it's a difficult thing to talk about and just think of as well at the same time, you know. What I'm does guilt feel like? <clears throat> it's very difficult. You're trying to get over it, like, and you feel you can't get past that because you're being reminded, like, see, his mother, the kid, and all. I'm like saying, like, I'm at the change of my life, like, and my God, they're gonna see when I get out of here. Because the last time we got out, I was saying the same, but I got I got charged on this. So I went backwards, I was thinking, prison, prison, my head's wrecked. Do you know what I mean? I'll go, I have to go, I'm going to go, like, do you know what I mean? But I was just thinking, going back there and I have a relationship with this girl and she's going to end up moving on and I don't want that. So I tried to do everything I could and I don't know, I ended up just fucking my own head up, you know? And now coming back in this time and I'm trying to tell her, look, things are different this time. I'll have no court for you, love. I'll have no bail checks, I don't have to... Like, I don't have to go down and sign on every day and I can leave the country and go on holidays. I haven't had my passport since I'm 17. I used to have to keep giving it for my bail conditions. So I have a proper life to live and I want to show her the real person that I am. If she loved me for the person I was back then, she'd fall head over heels for me as the person I'm going to tell, be when I get out Tell here. me about who it is that you're going to be. And it's not even that you're going to be them. It's I'm recognising that you're you're seeking to be who you were always meant to be. Yeah. So who who do you feel you were always meant to be? Who, not who I am, who I am right now is I'm in a good headspace and I'm in love, I love myself again. And growing up, I always wanted to do the gym and be big and all, so I'm hoping to be a personal trainer one day. And I, I know I will be, like I'm doing a course in here at the minute for to be a personal trainer. And everyone says to me that I'm looking well. I've come on, I've came a long way, like, jeez, when I come in here, I was in a bad way, like coming in rashes and I was real skinny, like I'm bloated in the belly because I was on Olanzapine tablets, like antipsychotic tablets. And when I first came in, like, I was all over the place and I actually brought stuff in with me 
and started taking them to keep going back to sleep because I knew it was going to be torture like the first couple of weeks in here because having a kid outside and home and just not having the friends that I had when I was coming in, like anyone to back me up. Like I came into prison on my own. I've had 12 fights and I'm not proud of it in 24 months that I'm in prison. But I haven't had a fight in eight months, touch wood. I'm imagining all those times where you wanted your dad to witness you do good things. Yeah. But now you're your own witness. Yeah. To good things. Yeah. Well, this wouldn't have meant so much to me back then. But it does now because I'm a father myself and I feel I've grown as a person. And uh, like I'm 30 years of age, like, you know, time's not slowing down. Like I remember when I was only 16, 17, 18 and playing pitch and put and what have you. And pulling on, loving life. But I'm happy as I ever was right now and I'm in prison. So I can only imagine what I'm going to be like when I get out. What are you interested in doing in the school now I'm that doing, you're... Everything is about my kid, to be honest with you. I think some people cringe when they hear how much I want about my kid. But I always wanted to have a child and... I always wanted a boy and it was a, it was a, we never revealed the gender like before the, the, the birth. So yeah, when I found out it was a boy, I jumped, I jumped onto the doctor, the, <laughs> the fella in the surgery and I grabbed him by the neck and I said, look at the balls on him, it's a boy. <laughs> Will you calm down? Will you calm down, daddy? That's what he says to me. <laughs> so uh, but yeah, I'm just, I'm just over the moon and just come, when I came in here and I got sober and clean and I'll, it just, it's, I'm just reliving the moment, you know? And So do you feel um, that that, desire to be a father is because you know how important it would have been for you to have that and yeah. you want to give that yeah 100% and like my the mother of my kid as well her dad hasn't really been there for her either so mm. I know she doesn't I know she's hurt as well and my god I've done some bad things like you know I'm not going to start crying here around, but I've done some bad you things you can also cry if you want you nah, do know nah, that nah, don't nah. you nah. are we not there yet we're not at no, the crying I yet I think I'm over all that <laughs> When I came first came in, like I feel myself kind of tearing up or whatever, yeah. but like it is emotional because I just think of all the stuff she's been through, and I was always thinking about myself, and she never had really hold that there for her, and me not being there for my kid. Like as soon as I was mind them all, I was loving having them there, but own bills out for things, and yeah. like people annoying me then for money and threatening, you know, all that crack. When I went well, back then, I was well able to stick up for myself, but I just went to a stage that I was weak, and people were sticking the boot in then at me when they see me down, they were kicking me when I was down. It wasn't nice. And I had no friends, everyone turned away from me and I became an addict, a sniff addict and all. And I wasn't able to love my kid like I can now, you know? Yeah. And I was thinking to myself, anytime I was minding them, I was saying, hey, will you come in and collect them? I was making up excuses just to get rid of my you own kid. You were in a rush to get away because of addiction well, and, and stuff. And I wanted to try and get the money and I'm not, and I'm ashamed of everything I've done to get money, but sure. Look, uh, just, I've changed anyway and that's all I can tell you. Yeah. So how do you, um, so say if there's a, there's obviously, two things that can happen, right? Say in, in relation to your own, say, want and desires for your dad, right? Yeah. And one of them is that he finds his own path and journey and, and his own healing. Yeah. And the other is that if he doesn't, how do, you, how do you let go of the wanting him to be something else? I've been trying to do that for the last couple of years. I don't know, since since I found out that he was in heroin, he's promised me that the first time he let me down, that he was going to go to treatment and he let me down. I wanted to stop believing that he would and caring for him, but it's just so hard to let go. He's my father, like, you know, and, uh, Do you think you ever get to the point of acceptance if your parents in addiction? Yeah, I kind of have accepted it a bit now. Like back then I was hitting other people for giving it to him, but so he's the one that's going looking for it. So, uh, I've kind of accepted it. I see the way it is in here as well in prison. Like, not talking out of school or anything, but you know yourself. Yeah. Like you, you see people like sick then and gone. 
there's nothing you can do. Like it's the people they're going looking for it. It's hard to say no to a, a person that's taking heroin because they 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 get on their knees like and cry to a man for it. So I can't say no to anyone either. So I can only imagine what the dealers are like if it's putting money in their pockets. You know. So you're actually um, thinking of, I know you have your folder there, but you also have been journaling and stuff. How Have, have you found that helpful to kind of yeah, just get your thoughts on, pe- on a, a page? A lot of people would laugh at you in here for doing stuff like that because... They oh, come here, they're all doing it in secret. They're just not telling you. They're yeah. all finding ways to organise their thoughts. Well, I, I, I'm doing this since the day I came in here and it's, it's some bad stuff and angry and it's good to get it out, you know, because if you've no one really to talk to and... You can't really open up to many people in here because one day they're your friends, the next day they could be your enemy and they're going spreading all your, your shit to everyone else. And it's not nice because it happened to me before in prison, you know. On this sentence, actually, I trusted the young flat handling stuff in the cell and he ends up arguing with me and fell out with me and he got and started talking to show you. Make, it against, and you and fabricating the story like and making it believable when people didn't know me and they believed him because, so, you know what I mean? Why would so you like so really... Using a journal in a prison setting or in any setting is a positive thing. Um, I've journaled since I'm a kid and it's always helped me. Um, not always. Sometimes I was still a bit splats, right? But splats. like, <laughs> <laughs> but like, um, it has always helped me try and understand myself. Yeah. You know, um, I remember when I was younger, I used to talk to my dog because that wouldn't the dog wouldn't tell anyone anything. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And you actually mentioned because you made me think of that actually because you my mentioned dog. your dog in your in your poem. In your poem, yeah. And it made me think of me like and again when you when you read the book you'll see me talking about sitting I, in the garden crying to my dog Toby like because I trusted Toby. Yeah. You know, and uh, there's just loads of kind of similar thought processes I think between. The two of us, and I think, um, I, I think that's why when you came in and read that po- poem yesterday, I was really glad that you agreed to come back and chat to us today because I do, I do get the sense from you that you're really evaluating yeah. everything and thinking about it and being really open, which I'm sure hasn't always been easy in your life to be open with somebody. Yeah, that's the, the you hit the nail on the head. Sorry, um, like. I'm in progress now to get out here. I'm in 24 months and I'm only 16 months left. You did mention that you had ADHD and, you know, that's obviously difficult then when you have to share a space with someone because you want to have your own ways to express any sort of energy yeah, or yeah, yeah. little quirks. I'm reading or, there, the way I told yeah. you, I, I'm really interested in reading your book. Yeah. I only got through eight pages because he's, what mess, he's trying to talk to me when thinking that I'm in that mindset of having a laugh and all when I'm not. I'm trying to concentrate on the book and I'm really interested in reading that book. But every time I try to read it, he's looking down through the top of the bunk bed at me laughing and this and that, trying to put me <laughs> off. So I'm really looking forward to getting through your book. Yeah. yeah. But it, it must be um, difficult to try and manage yourself in a cell with somebody else. Ma, very, very. Like, you, you, you want to watch the telly or you want to do something. He wants to do the opposite and you can, it can turn into an argument. So to just save all the arguments, like, I just sit, sit there and do my own thing, you know. And uh, it is very difficult, yeah. No, so I, that's why I started coming up to the school. I, n- I wasn't really coming to the school for a while, and I just want to change things around a bit. And I would jog the yard if I could, if I could, but there's too many out there that be, you know what I mean? Like there's too many out in the yard out there. So I wouldn't go, like I don't really care anymore. I've no shame. So, yeah. you no, know, so yeah. I'm doing so my own thing now. When you go home, what yeah. are you gonna do? First thing I'm gonna do. Everyone says when they get out, I'm gonna go and do this with a woman or the, you know, fly, go off with a young one or whatever. They've all pictures of women up on the wall, but. I'm going straight to my kid, and everything I've got in here, I've, I've left myself with nothing. I sold my PlayStation 3 at Christmas to, for 200 quid, and only bought it for 125, just to give my kid something for Christmas, and yeah. money that my friends gave me, gave to my kid, and my ma to help her out at home, because she's a single parent at home. With, and um, 
yeah, I just want to be there for, for my kid when I get out and be able to provide for him. Like, I can't while I'm in here, but I've done everything I could while I'm in here. So, yeah, when I get out, I think of a great future ahead of me. This, so do I. This is the start of it. Yeah, I was a dealer on the street selling drugs as a kid. That was how my head lived. Trying to get by life for me was a struggle with my head in the sand and my face in a... Conversations on the Margins is a limited series podcast produced by me, Lynn Rowan, and the team at Alfonso Films in partnership with GoLoud and funded by the Rhone Trust with the support of the IPS and Governor Eddie Mullins. We would like to thank the Irish Penal Reform Trust for all the support in making this podcast happen. Sound on Location was recorded by Dave Fannin and Rob Moore with editing and sound design by Kieran O'Connor. The music used in this series is written and performed by students in the Educational Centre in Weefield Prison. I would also like to thank the principal and teachers in the Education Centre of Weefield Prison for facilitating this podcast and for all your support. Finally, and most importantly, I would like to thank each and every one of the men who sat down with me, opened up and had a very real conversation. I know it wasn't easy, but I'm very grateful. You'll find conversations on the margins forced every Tuesday on the Go Loud app and all major podcast platforms too.